Welcome to the I Am Unbreakable podcast, where the struggle is part of the story. Real, unconventional, unconventional. And here's your host, Adrian. I'd like to welcome my special guest and one of my most favorite people in the world, Dr. Carol Mellick. She is a researcher, an educator, has a PhD, a, is a psychotherapist, and the co-founder of Counseling YYC. Welcome, Carol. Thank you, Adrian, and thanks for inviting me to have a discussion with you today. You're welcome. We are very honored. We're going to just jump right into this in line with Bell Let's Talk and all the mental health awareness uh, movements that are going on. You know, it's very near and dear to my heart, both personally and professionally. The work that you do is really such like it's to be celebrated. It is so amazing. And we need more people like you in the world. I understand from your uh, past career, you were an ICU nurse. Do you mind if I ask what your motivation was to shift into the brain work and brain wellness work you're doing now? Sure. Uh, I think that being 20 plus years ago, um, I was working in the tertiary setting, um, ICU, CCU, and previous to that, the operating room um, and other areas within uh, healthcare, uh, working as a registered nurse. And though I found that work immensely satisfying, um, what was becoming apparent to me, particularly in ICU, is that there was a significant portion of uh, what I believed uh, to be important to overall health and well being. Um, was the missing element of helping people with their brain health, do, doing more targeted um, approaches to dealing with that aspect of their overall functioning, because we were exclusively focused on physical, physiologic health in people who were in multi-system uh, failure. And I, I think there were some pivotal cases that I had worked on um, that had really provoked me uh, to, to question whether or not we were missing something that was really core and essential to helping people to become well again. And uh, I think that uh, piqued my curiosity um, to think about then moving into some research role to try to understand that, elucidate what are the mental health factors, uh, emotional health, rela relational health, social health. How did that all factor into outcome when, when people were facing really serious uh, physical health threats? And so that just led me into uh, back to university to, um, as a mature person, um, to I study. love that though. I love the fact that you had a vision and then you redirected yourself. You didn't let age, gender, or anything stop you from what your passion was. Right. That's right. That's right. And it, you know, it would be easy enough to be intimidated. It had been well over ten years 
uh, that I had been out of university and I, it was like something like 15 or 14 years. Um, so I, I was w one of the older students there and, um, but I felt like it was a privilege to be back <clears throat> because wow. I had a different perspective to, to bring based on world experience um, and maturity that you gain in that. And uh, it was an exciting time for me. And, uh, and more than that, um, it, it was an opportunity to really sink into the research method and the research process to, to truly try and understand and scientifically um, something that's always been difficult to elucidate because in men, like in the mental health, brain health, we rely so much more on subjective ways of assessing and evaluating. And um, I really felt committed to understanding it from a more scientific uh, way. And that led me into um, really, really interesting research that change, like virtually changed the direction of my life at that point professionally. I love that. And as you said, it's, it doesn't matter what age you are. If you find your passion, you go for it, you put your head down and you did the work and a lot of work. And I know one of the things that uh, you have brought, one of the many hundreds and thousands of things you've brought into my world, um, and just even talking about changing the language and the narrative and the stigma around mental health, uh, you call it brain health or brain wellness, which I love. Yes, and that that comes uh, really in in uh, paradigm shift uh, that has been pioneered by Dr. Daniel Daniel Amen from the U.S., a double board certified psychiatrist. Uh, who's written numerous books and is really trying to push uh, the the way we look at uh, brain functioning and and shift the narrative uh, from a kind of disease focus to um, health, like a more health focus, like we would talk about cardiovascular health, what we might talk about kidney health, bone health. Now uh, we can talk about mental health from a perspective of the brain, the, the, the brain being central to our um, overall experience with mental health and how we might approach that less from a disease-based model to a well-being, figuring out what are the, the, the ways, what are the factors that working synergistically uh, that can create uh, circumstances for our brains to function far better. And those are factors that have been very clearly elucidated from a, a, a evidence-based approach uh, that Dr. Amen has been working on for um, many years now. And and that I think it, it it's a game changer. I, I believe that that's going to really be the, the next uh, phase of uh, health and well-being is to look at how important the brain is in our overall well-being, both physically, socially, mentally, and so on. 
I love that. And yes, you just referred a few books that I just started reading his first and extremely interesting. So I think we'll have to do a whole nother podcast on that. I want to ask you just very quickly, and I know it's not a quick question or and definitely not uh, a quick answer. What do you feel in today that people can do if they're struggling with mental health uh, challenges, issues? What do you feel that they can do to get the help that they need? We know there is so many people struggling. I mean, one out of two people are struggling with anxiety and are not getting the help that they need. And whether it be by choice or whether it be because they're on a wait list, is there something that you can suggest from your perspective what they could do? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. And it's a complicated question that would obviously be restrained by amount of time that we have to talk about this. But if if I were to try to pare it down to some essential things, one of the most important things um, is to put yourself on your team. And, and that means that like uh, that the importance of reaching out and getting help couldn't be overstated. Uh, but we realize that uh, today that the in, there, there is that the infrastructure um, isn't comprehensive enough to help people when they need help and and leading to often these circumstances where they're on a two-year wait list to see a, a psychiatrist or uh, even to get into their uh, family doctor is is difficult now and family doctors aren't specifically and targetedly uh, trained in mental health um, they'll typically do a year, yeah, they'll typically do a referral, mm-hmm. which is another wait period. And this mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. you know, definitely, um, you know, the utmost respect to the the uh, healthcare providers because they're overwhelmed. We understand yes. it. Um, I think the person that is maybe frustrated not being able to get in needs to understand it a little bit better, um, that it's not their choice. It's just that they're worked to the nines and overloaded. I understand that. But you said something so important, and I didn't want to interrupt, but you said about team. You know, you always have had that approach that it kind of like takes a village, right? So it's not just going to, let's just say, your doctor or your GP or the hospital or to a psychotherapist, but it's also having a team of possibly your family, possibly a sponsor, possibly other groups and organizations. Yes, indeed. And, you know, we know that um, one of the, the factors that contributes to overall brain functioning in, in, in an effort to help it function uh, optimally is the social factor and that that it is really key to look at um, how do we deal with some of the ways that we feel in a struggle um, will will be aided by a social context that we can create but also, um, must be a part of, right? Where where we commit to um, that team, who whoever that winds up being, that we carefully select 
who's on that team, what I call the team helpful, mm -hmm. identifying those people who, when you come away from an interaction with them, whether it be a one minute conversation on the phone or riding up an elevator on the way to the office or the next door neighbor or a family friend, that whether it's a two minute exchange or a two hour, that you always come away feeling better. Exactly. Those, those form the people that I call the team helpful and, and being able to identify that. But I, I always um, encourage people to make sure they put themselves first on that team so that, that, that when they're with themselves, that they learn how to be helpful to themselves and adopt and learn how to be able to coach themselves to to make sure that they're aware of their the, the way on unconsciously, subconsciously, or consciously um, befriend or become enemy to themselves by way of the way they talk to themselves, their internal diet, what we call the internal dialogue. And Absolutely. so put, putting ourselves on the team and then selecting who who is it in my social uh, network that uh, I can rely on either just simply for a social exchange that's positive or uh, where they're professionally uh, or even not professionally trained to, to be of help and support to us. And um, so that is absolutely really key. So, so when I think about your question about like, what can we do? What are the most important things that we can do? Um, I think about first that putting yourself on the team and deciding that you're gonna try and help yourself, um, then creating who is the village, the, the people that will um, help in a positive way, and then develop some of the other uh, factors and dimensions, domains that go into a good outcome, um, like what your self-care practices daily are, um, i.e. your lifestyle, um, avoiding substances, alcohol, drug substances, even food people use to um, emotionally comfort themselves. Those can all be seen as substances that contribute in a negative way to our overall uh, brain functioning and our also our physical health. Well, because um, I think they're using uh, those things you just listed as, you know, kind of self-medicating, if you will. And soothing, yeah, soothing themselves in a way that is not going to be self-serving, like you said. And you mentioned people, you have always been a very big advocate. And I think you did say it. I just want to reiterate if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, is also there's groups. There's groups in every city that you could become a part of very, very easily, either online if you're not able to get out or you can go in person now, correct? Yeah, indeed, virtual or in person, but it, it takes uh, motivation. And that's not a passive process, it's an active one. So it comes sort of bringing an attitude and a conviction that if I, if I uh, avoid social isolation, that I will in fact, co-create conditions for myself to feel better but it, it's an active process not a passive one 
And this is something that takes a lot of courage and, and bravery to prompt self, to, to reach out, to, to ask for those connections, to co-create those connections. Um, and we've had to be very creative through uh, the period of the global pandemic because we, COVID exacerbated our isolation uh, in due to, due to the um, restrictions put in place uh, in an effort to slow the spread and stop the spread, um, the, the uh, regulations that came about put people into um, prolonged isolation. And, and so I have a question, if you don't mind, before you go on, because that is such a huge point. And I wanted to ask an expert like yourself, do you feel that being you know, uh, isolated and having to do and putting those parameters on individuals. Do you feel that almost gave some people, and I don't want to use the word an excuse, but a reason not to put themselves into a social situation and now continue what I'm hearing from my clients is that their loved ones are continuing to use that for a reason not to go. Do you feel that to be true or? Not so much. Yeah, I, I do think so. You know, it's a little bit uh, akin to what happens to people who live in cold climates in the winter with that prolonged eight months of low uh, day, low exposure to daylight and cold temperatures. People tend to retreat. And so yeah. this was a different reason for retreating. Um, but in doing so, um, one day leads into a week to a month to many months. And it takes an extraordinary amount of, of, of effort to overcome that kind of slowing down, retreat to the couch. Um, to, uh, it, it takes a great amount of energy to overcome that. And uh, I, I think that's, that, that was additive in, in COVID. We were um, we were recommended into isolation in a prolonged way, started off what, what we might've thought was just going to be a couple of months. Yes, we can go into our rabbit holes or our bomb shelters so that we don't spread, become vectors to spread this disease and to protect yourself, but, but primarily to protect others. Um, but it's very difficult, um, to, then in, in our own homes by ourselves, uh, continue to find a way to be active. Mm -hmm. and, and it led to that sort of prolonged state, like what happens if we're in a hospital, in the hospital bed, you know, that deconditioning happens very fast. And it so does. then it takes, right? Like it's, if you look at the physics from a scientific point of view, it takes a lot more energy to move a rock that stopped than it does to move a rock that's in motion. It may be in very slight motion, but it takes a lot less energy to keep it moving and get it moving faster and faster. Right. And so and that is that is massive. I mean, I think exactly what you're saying, it, you know, just scientifically makes so much sense because motion is motion, regardless if it's snail's pace or, you know, speedy, you know, through, you know, sprinting through something, motion is motion, regardless of how slow people are moving. 
And before we get into the very exciting topic that I've just been sitting on pins and needles waiting to ask you about, I don't think you've spoken to anybody so far regarding your new project pertaining to mental health therapy. And it's new, it's innovative. Can you please tell us a little bit about it? Very exciting. Sure, thank you for asking. Um, we, uh, the, this project is uh, Why Am I Health? Um, and if any, anybody's interested in finding more about it, uh, they can um, go to the website. Um, and yes. whyamihealth.com. Perfect, and we will definitely put that at the end of the podcast. Thank you. Um, it, it, this is a project uh, that came to me a few years back um, by a very innovative uh, entrepreneur uh, who had had come to a stage in his life that um, he became more interested in health and in particular mental health um, as he'd come from industry and he, he developed uh, AI or also known as machine learning. I think that's more accurate of a term, um, but that he was applying uh, machine learning AI technology more in an in, in industry purpose because that was the, that that was where he'd come from. And he had this curiosity about like, is this technology that could be used in uh, mental health? And he approached me about his idea and uh, I was quite excited about it um, because this area is lacking or lagging uh, in, uh, in the health setting versus in industry. And um, though there are technologies in health, um, in mental health, there's less. And um, we loosely developed the concept. Um, at the, the best reference I can use is it's a tool that we're using as a threat assessment, simply put. And the, the That's huge. tool... Yeah, the, the tool is is an object. We, what we try to do is develop an objective measure measure because in in mental health and brain health, much of how we assess it is based on self report, subjective way of assessment. And what we try to do is make that a little bit more objective and um, very uh, the more from a reliable point of view um, where there's consistency across people because with mental health, brain health assessment, um, it really can be quite different from one person to a next person, even though they're professionally trained, there's huge diversity. And we, we do actually have a, 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 an accuracy of less than 40% in our diagnoses wow. and so we we already recognize that there are some gaps there and that this tool really was designed to try to identify through um use of this tool the 10 or so most common mental conditions that create distress for people anxiety depression 
um, and a number of others to um, try to identify early, but based on a much more comprehensive set of assessment questions that go all the way back to early childhood experiences, um, assessment of genetics, um, and, and then life experiences that um, people have in their uh, beyond childhood. And so it's quite comprehensive. Many people, when they go to their GP, they, they have you know anywhere from five to 15 minutes to try to explain the things that they're- A lifetime. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you know, it's very difficult in five to 10 minutes to have something accurate as, an, a, as, a, as a diagnosis or as a, um, uh, a label that a physician might have to use. And, and this, I think, is a tool that can increase that efficiency to a degree. Um, and it, it's basically a predictive survey. It's not diagnostic in the sense that if you uh, complete the, the survey that you, you now are diagnosed with depression. Uh, it, it is sim simply a early indication that, that there are that there's a possibility it could be depression and then that could streamline you more specifically towards um, a assessment then done by a professional who would uh, be able to take it from there and, and do what would be necessary to form uh, uh, diagnoses then determine a treatment based on that diagnosis. Um, and so I think it's really exciting uh, because we are really at a, a critical point in our healthcare services that the demand has exceeded our resources to supply and to meet that demand. And that I think many people working in the uh, field of uh, brain health, mental health, and of course, tertiary health, that there's a overload and it is leaning, it is leading to um, staff feeling burned out and retiring early, leaving, you know, going, you know, quitting altogether because I think people who are in the field of, of healthcare have a passion about helping people. And when we can't do that, uh, it, it leads to disappointment, disillusionment, um, stress, and burnout. And um, we, we can't afford to continue to, to ignore this and, and, and let this situation continue to endure. And the, the COVID exacerbated what was already a, pro a problem. It just exacerbated it, I think. And so we have to... In, enhance people's ability to access help um, and lift some of the restrictions overall to um, gaining health. Um, and because, I, and in addition to that, um, I think the advent of um, self-diagnosis movement that has been spawned by the uh, internet that people are naturally 
propelled to to go to Dr. Google and throw in there. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like significantly on the rise. So, you know, many people are going to their doctors or psychotherapists and their healthcare providers and saying, well, doc, I think this is what I've got. Um, I get that all the time. They'll call and they'll say, oh my goodness, my partner is bipolar or they're this or they're that. And, you know, my first question to them is, have they been diagnosed through their physician or through a professional? Oh, no, I just know I read it online. He's got all or she, he or she has all the signs and symptoms, which, you know, you just kind of scratch your head and say, okay, well, if you were to go on Dr. Google, say you had a rash, it could be anything from, you know, an allergic reaction to, you know, cancer. So Mm -hmm. there's such a wide range, like you said. So I thank you so much for your time. Uh, You are, as I said, such an inspiration and such an important part of this movement. But I'm going to ask you one question. You are in this industry, as you stated earlier. How do you personally deal with stress and your mental or brain wellness? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I have a very simple formula, which is part of what I build in um, to the plans, the coping plans that I uh, help, I, I develop for people who see me in private practice. Um, and it, it's kind of a simple five point uh, plan that uh, number one involves self-care, a commitment to my own self-care and making that prioritizing that so what is that that is regular exercise that is making healthy food choices that is um, minimizing or um, or electing out altogether of consuming substances like alcohol uh, and other uh, agents that uh, have uh, you know have been identified as risky to our health so uh, that sort of sobriety lifestyle. Um, So avoiding those uh, daily structures, the third, like really having some routines and hold on. What was number two? Let's go back because I was number two, the lifestyle of substance free. No, lifestyle self-care is the first one. Okay. Avoiding avoiding substances Was is number second. two, but it 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 falls under self care too. But right. it, it's a it, it's a category in and of itself. Of course. Um, and number three is daily structure or uh, routine. Having daily routine. I get up at the same time. I go to bed more or less at the same time. Um, and making sure that I have some structure to my day where I feel like I have a purpose, where I have something to do. A purpose and it gives you the predictability too that, okay, you know, I've, I've had a really tough morning. I know I've got four more hours, but you know, at four and a half hours, I'm going for a run out in, you know, wherever you may go for your exercise, correct? Indeed. Um, the fourth is uh, journal writing, writing down your thoughts. And in within that structure to absolutely include joyful reflections and gratitudes, like for, forcing your thought processes to think in, in a positive way, like creating 
a positive mindset. Almost like, rewiring. I think you used to use that rewiring your brain or training correct. your brain correct. to go to the positive, correct. you know, living in gratitude. It's those 19 paved highways to negativity and the one dirt road to negativity that sometimes to positivity yes. or excuse me, other way around. Yes. Is, uh, you know, typically human nature. Right. And you're yes. saying, even if you're grateful for, you know, your first breath in the morning or putting your two feet on the ground, that is something to be grateful for. Just find Indeed. the small things first. Indeed. And they don't actually have to be magnanimous. They can be very simple things like a little bird that lands on my windowsill that I look at its beautiful feathers and the colors in that. Um, we, we don't need magnanimous things to be grateful, but but it takes very deliberate effort to uh, do that. And when we stay in our head, um, our cognitive processing speed is super fast, 1500 words a minute on average. And wow. we there's so much material going past us that we really can't capture a lot of the material. And so we may actually have thoughts, moments where we feel gratitude and joy, but we, we uh, need to dwell on them in order to create neural pathways in our brain. And because we're born with a negative cognitive bias, we are born that way. We have to work in a very deliberate way to try to overcome that and shift that and change that. Um, a negative mindset will never give you a positive life. And so we, we have to cultivate a positive mindset, but it takes effort. It feels a bit contrived, uh, but it gets easier and easier over time. And slowing writing takes uh, uh, cognitive processing speed somewhere around 15 words a minute. And when we can slow our processing speed down, we'll capture more detail. And it is that detail where we might be able then to see joy, to see moments of gratitude, to express those. And so that is a, a really important dimension to um, staying well and, and um, what I do. I don't, um, I, I, I don't think people necessarily uh, understand when, I, when we say journal writing, um, they're, they're imagining maybe something a little less structured and that can help. Uh, but in journal writing that I, teach. It's very structured so that we're building new neural pathways to help towards uh, new neural pathways that will lead us in a more balanced way in our mindset. And then the last is um, basically avoiding social isolation. Like that is so wow. absolute key. People will often say people are depressed, for example, will tend to socially isolate. Um, and they don't want to go, they, they don't want to go out. And then when, when the, care, the care plan that I developed has that as a goal, and they do it, I'll say, well, how, like, what was the experience of that? Well, I, I had fun. And I, I didn't want to go. I, I felt dark. But actually, when I did go, I had some fun. And so I it's always the pre- to you know actually going out that causes maybe the anxiety and mm -hmm. the you know thought of I don't want to go but like you said once they're in it you find that they're thankful that they went and they did have a good time is yeah, that they experienced something yeah they experienced something positive they they have 
they have a period of time, whether it's 20 minutes or two hours or eight hours, they have a period of time where they're out of their mom, like coming out of their the brooding, the negative themes that they're uh, ruminating on, their mind is occupied through that social engagement. Um, and oh, there's, al there's almost always a positive lift from that um, with, with the caveat that who you spend time with, it would be considered more along the team helpful, like somebody who, who, who has maybe a positive attitude, somebody who has a positive mindset, spending time with them can be very uplifting. Um, and even if they have more of a neutral mindset, that can be helpful as well, because maybe they smile at you. Uh, and when somebody smiles at you, we always feel good about that, don't we? 150%. I'm always about, you know, be kind to people, even that you don't know, because nobody ever knows what the other person is going through, even yeah. if it's simply, you know, the whole paying it forward. I'll never forget the first time somebody paid for a coffee for me. And again, it doesn't need to cost you anything. You could open the door for somebody, ask somebody, how was your day? You're doing yeah. a great job regardless. But when somebody bought me a coffee, I was so taken aback. I was, it was just the nicest, kindest thing, you know, somebody had done for me in days. So it just, it made you feel good. And then you do, you also not only just, it's not about receiving, but then giving to the person behind you, I think is so incredibly important. Carol, can you share who was involved in this project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, Jim Durward is the lead on this. Uh, he, he is the sort of CEO of the project. Uh, and he amassed a, a team uh, that uh, in, included a psychiatrist, uh, myself, a physician, a hospitalist, um, a neurologist who read some of the brain, the brain scans that were measured. Um, and uh, I think that kind of maybe would be the, the main core uh, of the team. And, you know, he gave us, you know, full mandate to try to create a, an assessment tool that was comprehensive. And based on uh, many, many decades of collective experience amongst the team. Um, so it, it was very exciting because it was really a collective effort. That's great. It sounds like such a powerhouse of a team. It was. So my parting words to uh, address what is it that we can do aside from that five point um, model of how to care for self and uh, create conditions to have a, a good health, healthy brain um, and, and mental health experience it is to move towards a compassionate, empathic, kind um, approach to the relationship we have with ourselves and the relationship that we create with other people. And that involves a, a level of forgiveness, letting go of the things that we feel angry and upset with and hold resentment because resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other person gets sick from it. Um, we, if we practice, if we truly practice forgiveness, if we truly lead 
with empathy and compassion for other people, we will feel less upset. We will feel less angry. And those are conditions that will help cultivate a healthy brain. Carol, thank you so very much. You have obviously inspired me and thousands of people and thousands of lives that you've touched. Can you just let people know how they can read about your new project if they'd like? And if they'd like to contact you, do you mind just to give them, which we'll also put at the end of the podcast, just if you can give them those websites again, that would be great. Yeah, you bet. So um, to access more information about the uh, AI project that that health assessment uh, tool, they can uh, log on to YM, as in mother, I, ymihealth.com. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Carol. I so appreciate you and enjoy your run. Thank you. I'm going to head out into the snow now. That's awesome. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks for Have inviting me. Have a great me. day. And good health to you. Thank you. And, and, to, to, all, to, and to all your listeners. Thank you, Carol. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the I Am Unbreakable podcast. Real, authentic, authentic, real life stories of women, women who've become unbreakable. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram at I.AmUnbreakable. Unbreakable.